0: My name is Elaine Padilla. I am a, an associate professor uh, in the Department of Religion and Philosophy and Latin, and Latin American Studies at the University of La Verne. Um, today I just simply want to share with you a, uh, briefly uh, my understanding of how process philosophy and open and relational theologies and philosophies can serve as a basis for uh, understanding transcendence uh, in a manner that can allow us to think of sexuality in ways that uh, disrupt uh, any uh, discourse or any sense of dominance or power over transcendence defining classical ways and this is not to uh, avoid uh, discussing any complexity of its complexities but um for the sake of time uh i just want to offer some broad strokes um transcendence often is viewed as an individual no that is in itself for itself by itself oftentimes that is assigned to god because it is a reflection of the ideal of transcendence um sexuality if we want if we uh Come to define it uh, according to such transcendence, then becomes can become an instrument or tool that can be exercised or that can exercise privilege. Um, Often times, uh, it uh, it relegates another uh, to the space of inferiority or unworthiness uh, that uh, that demands you no, know, that demands an ascent, that demands uh, a movement outside the self. Uh, that can grant it transcendence. Now that which is exterior to the self, that is by itself, for itself and in itself, is that which is transcendent. And then you have a self that uh, in its interiority um, is not defined uh, in the sense of its own transcendence. You can also think of the manner in which uh, this model uh, a transcendent model, transcendence model that it is in itself, by itself, and for itself uh, also uh, places a demand in many ways for a kind of virility, you know, a kind of physical strength, a wealth, a good fortune, intelligence, authority, high social status, military prowess, Not that oftentimes uh, is viewed as beyond the ordinary extraordinary or supernatural Uh, in many ways when this kind of uh transcendence which is often assigned uh in the discourse on sexuality and gender for instance is often assigned to men then then we we have a in some ways a god or a uh or a transcendent being that is not willing to abdicate uh it's privilege you know and and in some ways reifies the demand uh for subservience for inferiority so that it can appear to be superior um it also gains a terrible amount of of pleasure in being worshiped um and uh and it can uh, elude uh, a a sense of intimacy and depth Something else that we can consider when it comes to transcendence viewed in classical classical terms is that, uh, specifically when we're thinking of a um, you know a, a a discourse or critical gender theory, we can think of how it confines uh, the bodies of women uh, to a place of subordination. You no, know? uh, the, the the body of women, their wombs, their biology. Can confine them more to the earth, and can confine them to a a, uh, to a space of of being a property, no, an object uh, rather than a subject. Um, It also uh, uh, creates uh, or partakes or implements a process or benefits from a process in which uh, the self has to create a god that is external to her, no, or external to the self. Uh, something that uh, the self can aspire to and uh, something that that can that that can in some ways mirror the self in in its almost desires and ideals but that it uh deems the self as um unequal to it or undeserving of holding such a position uh so you basically uh in a very far back way you are creating a god uh, to which you can worship uh, and a god that can elevate you uh, in ways that you as a self uh, because transcendence is assigned to something that is external to something that is enclosed in itself and for itself and by itself then uh, is independent from the self and, um, and in many ways um, more powerful than the self. You know, it can exercise that power over. Um, there seems to be a, 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 an inequality here, um, a sexual inequality. You know, if we're comparing that kind of transcendence and, and, and drawing from these principles to conceptualize sexuality in those terms, what we see is that then the intimacy becomes trapped, No. You know. Um, in part, is a making of the lover uh, that is, you know, deifying uh, the other, deifying the other lover, um, and considering it to be it, her transcendence. Um, and nonetheless, it also traps the intimacy in that um, the, there is a dependency, you know, Uh, to create that uh, deity in in the intimate act and to reflect that deity in the intimate act. And so uh, transcendence in many ways then becomes trapped by a negation of fullness and a negation of uh, selfhood. An open and relational uh, and process paradigm uh, of transcendence for me can be exemplified uh, in the prayers of Santa Teresa de Avila uh, as she draws from or or comments on the canticles. Uh, if you if we take a look a close look at her prayers, what we can note is that there is an erotic lover that that can that that grants God. Uh, unembodied love, you no, know, that 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 shatters in many ways the mirrors of absolute self-subsistence, and and that free up uh, the divine ecstasy uh, from the divine self, you no, know, that that frees it frees it from the enclosure in which uh, one can say that that the divine is found. Um, and, and, and I'm using the divine because, again, it has been the the almost exemplification or symbol of transcendence. And by using the divine, then, I'm, I'm also referring to a form of transcendence that can be uh, radicalized in some ways. It can be um, theorized in ways that are more open and relational and process, um, process uh, thinking. So... Here I'm, I'm thinking I'm, I'm uh, exploring uh, the significance of her play, of her prayer and how uh, she is not only wooing God and takes delight in God, but also expects a response from God, a, res- a response from her lover. She longs to hear the seducing words of, of her divine lover and that in return tend to draw her even deeper into an erotic dialogue uh, that only lovers can engage you no know? The dialogue also carries uh, a tune of mutual surrender like the notion of ecstasy that in many ways is, is not is not merely intellectual you no know? it, it is a, a whole self that includes the flesh, that includes the body, that includes the passions. Why attribute errors to God? Um, First of all, I I believe that imagining God as a beloved lover, one who is also wooed by the words of the lover, um, helps us uh, problematize or disrupt views of God bound to models of these enclosed circularity, as I have already mentioned. Um, It also challenges a metaphysics of love that holds god uh, uh in many ways captive of a metaphysics of being as, as static you no know, a, a, a being that uh has uh no form of yearning or has no appetite uh that is not in need, in or it, it does not need in the sense of wanting uh to be loved by another oftentimes the God the metaphysics of, of, of God or a metaphysics of, of love that, that we uh, are talking about is is uh, draws from more Aristotelian understandings of causation no It is a causation that uh, circles back from itself into itself and that it does not allow for a kind of giftedness that also receives for instance you have a gift uh that is the efficient cause that uses a formal cause and a material cause uh in order to to arrive at a final cause and so that kind of circularity as philosophers like jean marion have pointed out uh lead to uh a, a, what you call them a, ma- a metaphysics of love no a love that in many ways is unreachable and a love that does not reach out. Uh, in a sense, it's a gift that comes back to itself and, and that can result in a kind of boredom. You know? The divine lover in being both lover and beloved, uh, therefore is capable of wonder. This is one of the key characteristics of, of open and relational theologies and process philosophy is that the, that the divine would be adventurous uh it's adventurous in that it welcomes uh another in a manner that allows uh, the divine to be to have wonder and surprise no uh without the element of the unexpected how bored would god be as a lover No, without the unexpected without the 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 uniqueness and the new uh, how would how boring or how poor lover would that be Uh, when we consider transcendence, when we consider the divine. So what is the significance of God being wooed by the seductive words of the lover, or how important is it for God to hear the seductive prayers that express her pleasures? It means that there are multiple forms of pleasure. Uh, None uh, have to be the same. None have to be prescribed or proscribed, and none have to be opposite to the other means that there is no power over. It means that there is a power with. And uh, each lover can stand before the other and within each other and be within each other, uh, can share a unique kind of erotic enjoyment uh, that causes wonderment at the side of flesh incarnating itself. And by this, I mean that rather than having a transcendence in which the flesh has to deny itself or in which the flesh has to subordinate itself, this is the flesh that manifests itself in in all its intensity. Uh, so, so just imagine, for instance, the Eucharistic table. No, because the part of the wound, the the semblance to the wound or the metaphor of the wound, has to do also with the wine and the wine that is partaken at the Eucharist. Um, in in some uh, traditions, this wine is very incarnational. No. Uh, it, it is nor, not merely symbolic, and just just imagine the in, the partaking that occurs at, during the moment of Eucharist. You know that that you uh, that there is the with, the withinness of it, and the incarnation that occurs not only of the di- between of the divine, but also the incarnation of the self, and how each incarnate incarnate by means of the other, you know by means of flesh itself. And uh, so, so, here what we have then is a relationship that allows for the enfleshment of the lover or the enfleshment of both lovers. And that the jouissance or the enjoyment that is experienced is an enjoyment of flesh, of passion, of eros. Um, for instance, in her own words, she says, um, you know, she's talking about how, how the lover uh, expresses. Uh, its desires towards her, um, you know. There is the expression of the arrows, the, the 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 arrows that that are bouncing back, you know, that penetrate the divine, but that also bounce back and go deep into her her wounds as well. So so think of how the hearing uh, of her enjoyment, the 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 incarnation of her pleasure, can also uh, disrupt uh views that uh, that that regard uh, divine enjoyment or that regard transcendence as self-enclosed, as uh, apathetic, or or as um, external and superior. Um, her words break down the divine prison of absolute self-sufficiency uh, because that because she who also enjoys herself in her unique manner uh, also uh is able to witness the divine enjoying the divine self in the divine manner uh, and so there is no uh enclosure but there is also no dominance and and no expectation but again that opportunity for wonder for uniqueness for difference um, to be a part of the exchange so in the affirmation of flesh, uh, it is an affirmation of transcendence. Um, and and what we see is that uh, while, while we have a, a model of a God that receives God's flesh through the flesh of another, God also is capable of allowing for the other to experience its own flesh. And therefore, for there to be... Uh, a, a an erotic dialogue amongst lovers, you no, know, not not just one lover and uh and uh and a beloved or one that is always receiving and one that is always giving. Um think of the way in which for instance also for uh Teresa de Avilano you know, uh, the the cellar of uh, the wound also points to the divine breast you no know, and how then there is an exchange in many ways of the traditional understanding of the divine, either as male or, uh, or how the cosmos or the female, the, the beloved is always female, no? Just uh, cons- cons- we can consider how then there is a shifting of metaphors and images that problematize the kind of model that it is just basically uh, heterosexual in nature but also a kind of model that, that favors um, a male divinity. So what we can say also is that that we are affirming how, uh, how in concepts of transcendence and sexuality or concepts of God and sexuality, we have a, an understanding of a God that can truly savor the enjoyment and the pleasures of others no a a god that is aiming at the intensification of the pleasure of the other Uh, and and how then uh, rather than uh, a striving for the self to move upward or to attain a particular ideal the ideal is no longer present no the ideal is not there and what we have instead is a space for uh, authenticity and a space for genuineness. Jean-Luc Marion also ends with a, uh, a very interesting thought of uh, the manner in which uh, perhaps we can think of uh, the divine enjoyment. You know? uh, and, and he uses uh, words such as, God loves via the same means, stages, rhythms, and practices as we do. You know? He uses terms like us, as we do, and then allows for the divine to also be placed in a paradigm of freedom uh, that does not necessarily also confines the divine to human terminology, you know, or to human sexuality or to human constructs. Uh, It allows for the divine to have that kind of primordiality, you know, the kind of primordial uh, nature that we can think of, that that then uh, allows for that sense of openness also uh, in the manner of potentiality, in the manner of a newness and the future. Uh, God surpasses us as the best lover, says Jean-Luc Marion. No, God, God surpasses us as the be- best lover because there is a sense of mystery, because there is a sense of moreness that cannot be measured no that does not fall within factuality or past events or a destiny um, in the same manner in which also you know natural world orders and, and cosmos and limitations partake of that kind of newness and in infinity and that kind of moreness uh in a sense of the intimate event um so to say I love you also means that that there is a request to love me, uh, but also a, a, an opening, uh, come, no? An opening, here I am, an opening that says more, uh, that an opening that allows for the moreness of the event in the sense that one more time, no? Uh, it infinitizes the intimate, uh, moment by moment, and, uh, and it says now again, come some more, uh, and, and it allows for that kind of uh, unending sense of intimacy that it is not necessarily also again, or is not commodifiable, no, or it cannot fall into a product or a package, but that opens itself to a moreness of more future events uh that are a part of that very same moment or that very event without intersubjectivity without thinking of an inter exchange of selves uh, also wonder uh, in in some ways is not transforming of the self no it also stays at an external in an external level no uh, the outside of the self Uh if there is an inter exchange of selves, if there is a an exchange of for instance, like in the intimate event, if there is an exchange of fluids between the lovers, you no, know, that 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 the the lover, the male lover, if we put it in in you know transcendence, for instance, uh, is not um, it's not just merely giving, no? If transcendence is receiving something and being transformed by, by the limited, no? It's transformed by the concreteness. It's tra- transformed by the factual. Then, then what we have is a wonder that, that causes transformation in transcendence, no? That transcendence, therefore, is not something static, is not something permanent, is not something enclosed. Uh, it further disrupts us and so also takes, takes transcendence in some ways out of place, you No, know, puts it out of the proper place of transcendence. It gives transcendence a, a sense of impropriety and a sense of uh, a, an immodesty. Um, and, and, and this is, I think, one of the areas that are gray that, you know, for some people, then therefore transcendence is lost. Um, but perhaps we can think along the lines of the immodesty of love and the immodesty of, for instance, like what um, Whitehead would say, you know, the patient and tender lover and tender care, the one that insists that nothing be lost, the one that is amid the wreckage, you No, know, the immodesty of a transcendence that gets murky with the day-to-day experiences uh, and and the and the limitations of being self, and how that kind of immodesty uh, integrates itself, and and also uh, allows for a transformation that is deeply felt. You no, know, a transformation that uh, we can think of the consequent nature of God. You no, know, that that is deeply felt. That is deeply transformed by that which. Uh, is affecting it. So what I'm thinking is a uh, a self that expands itself and and leaves uh, and leaves a trace, you no, know, of itself, but also that allows for its horizon to be uh, to return, you know, to itself in an improper manner, or you know, that 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 both lovers return to themselves, you no, know, that in the act of intimacy and the act of union and the exchange of selves there is also return to the self and and this return to the self as lovers then allows for some kind of impropriety as well know that each has shifted its proper place and is each has shifted and and nothing has stayed the same and so um and one that's what some of the thoughts that i have in mind uh, it's kind of choppy, uh, perhaps, but I just wanted to uh, just share some ideas on how, how I thought that process, philosophy, and open and relational theologies and philosophies can really um, alter the manner in which we define transcendence and therefore the manner in which sexuality can become really truly more mutually enjoyable and can become, um, I guess, free of constructs. And expectations and the ideal, and that it allows for it can allow for um, for both to be great lovers. No, for there to be a great adventure of love, and that and that and that love is not defined by coercive forces and powers, or any kind of devaluation or diminishment of subjectivity or erasure but rather as a way to affirm the flesh and allow the other to become the best lover possible.
1: Wow, rich stuff there. Lots and lots going on. I'm looking forward to what folks ask in the chat box there. Um, What do you suggest the the way to start out, get at this, uh, Jonathan?
2: Well, first I was just going to say, how is it possible that two white, male, heterosexual Nazarene boys got to be so lucky to hang out with such a diverse and interesting and intelligent group of people? It blows me away, man. I just, you
1: know. Yeah, she's very intelligent and interesting, and so is James, yes. It
2: sounds to me, Tom, break this down for us, it sounds to me as she was saying, among other things that God actually enjoys the flesh, like the materiality and the messiness, uh, the impropriety, what would she say, the immodesty? Yes, all.
1: yeah. You know, I, I kind of wrote down, I did a list while she was talking, and actually even before I, earlier, of kind of comparing to God's this this God that she starts off with and talks about is transcendent. Here are some of the characteristics. We'll call it uh, the classical view of God. This God is self-enclosed. This God is in itself, for itself, and by itself. This God cares only about God's self because God's the only one that has true uh, value in a classical way of thinking. This God is absolved or um, it cannot suffer or at all. In other words, non-relational. This God has power over, has no needs, no wants. The vision of God she presents, that she calls process, open, and relational, is a God with these characteristics. This God has desires, eros. This God appreciates bodies and passions, is responsive. This God is surprised, and enjoys. This God has wonder because things are unexpected. And, and therefore, this God is not a boring lover. I love that line. <laughs> no. She is not enough, no. Uh, uh, in fact, she says this God is, surpasses us as the very best lover. This God is adventurous. Uh, maybe I'll stop there, but I think, kind of the comparing the two gods, she obviously is preferring this second one. And think this God not only gives us a better picture of who God is, but also helps us then to think about matters of sexuality in those kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. So good.
2: Should take an offering. It's so good. (laughs) Uh, Someone commented. Yeah, someone just made the comment. Jonna did. No power over, but power with. Mm. isn't that what elaine said Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what does that mean
1: for someone like you an open and relational well for me it means that um, we are not pawns Mm -hmm. in some cosmic chess match we have real contributions to make i even think that god's uh, empowering us giving power to us sharing power with us is something god does by nature such that God can't control us. And I know that's controversial for a lot of folks. But think about what true love is like. It, it's not controlling. And if we think God is, as she puts it, the greatest or the best lover or surpasses us as the best lover, and if we think love is uncontrolling, then God ought to be uncontrolling. I think she does something else here too. and she She doesn't maybe play this quite as much But she kind of does, she says, uh, the stereotypical view of the male-female relationship, it doesn't necessarily have to be heterosexual, but she says the stereotypical view is the male is the one who's dominant. Let's see, what are the others? Has the privilege, has the superiority, is transcendent over, whereas the woman is subordinate, earthly, property. And she says in this kind of way of thinking, intimacy gets trapped. Now, I think we can apply this to, to non-heterosexual relationships as well, that if there's one partner who's dominant, the other one is always subordinate, then intimacy can't flourish. And if we think God is the pure, best, intimate lover, then uh, we ought to think God is not overpowering, dominant. Um, yeah. Again, we could go on and on about this. This stuff excites me as well. <laughs>
2: I have not, well, yeah, I don't think a lot of us probably have heard a lot of folks talk about Eros uh, and connect it so well with God. Which reminds me, by the way, aren't you writing, are you writing a book
1: next year about Eros or something? Ooh, yes. Yeah. Well, Agape, Eros, and Philea. You remembered yeah. that from the retreat this summer, I'll bet. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
2: yeah. You always hear about Agape. You know? Right. And, and I'm, I'm all down with Agape, but it turns out. God is erotic and is in the middle of all of this. Like, what does that mean, that God's in the middle of all of our sexuality?
1: Yeah. I had a professor once uh, in grad school who believed that God is not only uh, present with us when we are engaged in sexual behavior, but when our sexual behavior is pleasurable and good, God says, thank you very much because even God enjoys the sexual uh, pleasure there, because God is actually not a God who's aloof and unaffected. The the classic language is impassable. But God is really relational and really feels what we feel, which means the good and the bad, the pleasurable and the unpleasurable. Uh, but that means in the midst of our sexual pleasures, God can enjoy it as well. Unfortunately, the God of... Uh, some of the most famous Christian theologians in history, some people like Augustine, for instance. Um, Augustine's God only enjoyed God's self. (laughs) They found no pleasure in us. And, uh, you know, I I sometimes think that's like God's the ultimate masturbator. You know, God only enjoys God's self. Whereas in this kind of uh, relationship in which there's mutual pleasure, We can imagine the mutual pleasure of a a creaturely sexual relationship uh, mirroring the God-creation relationship.
2: Uh, Totally. And how about a corollary thought? How about the—or an opposite thought, the sexual frustration of a a relationship? God is somehow in the middle of all of that, too. So God is erotically frustrated? Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's a great, great idea. <laughs> yeah.
2: Oh, but but it kind of has to be in terms of the way you think and the way I'm trying to think, open and relational, because he's, uh, yeah, he's 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 not impassable. He's right. Interactive. Well,
1: I, yeah, I think we can extend even the frustration to, um, you know, not all sex is good. Some sex is harmful painful, evil. And I don't think God wants that, but because God is present, even in those situations, God suffers with those who have been harmed. You know, it's quite, uh, think of sexually abused people, uh, people who've been raped. Uh, God is suffering with them in that. If this God is that second picture of god that that elaine presents who's a, a a god who really engages with us rather than aloof right that's that's so true
2: uh let's just scrolling through um yeah David, so true this is important as much of our society is infused with pauline platonic dualism that portrays the flesh as base dark and even demonic
1: Yeah, and in the history of Christianity, unfortunately, men were identified with mind and wisdom, and women were identified with the earth and fleshliness Mm -hmm. and thought to be second class because of that kind of platonic dualism that, uh, who was it, David mentioned? Um, I mean, one more reason to set that way of thinking aside, in my view.
2: Absolutely. Yes, Johann, concupiscencia.
1: Who laying on some Latin today, Johan? That's some, some Augustine stuff right there, right, Robert? <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, well, there's a question from Sandy about does which I know it goes into a whole different topic. But if God is not impassable and God doesn't control, then she says, uh, "Does God not know what we're going to say or do before we do it? Mm-hmm. Because He needs surprise to enjoy us." Great
1: question. I mean, this is a debate within Christianity for a long time, and I open and relational people are on the side of the debate that says God doesn't know with certainty what's going to happen in the future. God knows everything that can be known, but the future is not something that can be knowable. And one of Elaine's points is that the upside of that is that God can be surprised and. Uh, Surprise is oftentimes an aspect of pleasure, um, and therefore it fits into her overall scheme of a God who can enjoy pleasure. Mm -hmm. I'm often reminded uh, of uh, how knowing something in advance takes away so much joy. Mm -hmm. When I was about 10 years old, uh, one, one year for Christmas, I said to my mom and dad, I really want this particular football set. There was electric football. It's like so primitive compared oh. to what we have now. But it <laughs> was these things this, this thing vibrated. These football players would go across the field and I really wanted it. And about a week before Christmas, I snuck into my parents' bedroom and looked under the bed and I saw that they bought it for me. And so I was so excited, but then Christmas morning comes around and I got a fake, like I'm surprised, fake, like I'm really happy because I'd already experienced that joy in the past. The God who knows with certainty everything that's ever going to happen, can that God really have genuine joy in the moment, have genuine pleasure? I don't know. It's hard for me to imagine that. It makes a lot more sense that God can have pleasure and enjoyment because even God can be surprised.
2: And also that kind of thinking doesn't have to compromise. It doesn't have to compromise his strength either.
1: Mm, yeah. Yeah. Why, how, how would you expand on that? I think so. I mean, I, I think it will sound like a compromise of strength to those people who think that God must be a controlling God, because anything less than a controlling God will sound to them like a weaker God. But if we think of God's power as the power to persuade us to cooperate using our power, then we have a way of thinking about God's power being multiplied. Uh, Maybe another way to say it is this. um, You know, I've got a neighbor here who's a bodybuilder, and he can lift a lot of weights, but uh, another neighbor down in the other part of the subsection she is uh, running for school board and she's gathered around her a bunch of people who are supporting her cause who has the most influence in the world is it the guy who could lift you know 400 pounds or is it the little woman down the street who's persuaded other people to use their minds bodies brains talents to try to make a big difference in the world I think God's more like my friend down the street, who's able to persuade others to use power, than the the bodybuilder who can do 400 pounds.
2: Amen. I, I just told my college Zoom group last night that this will be on the test. What we're talking about here. <laughs> the be given. But the answer is, um, basically, I'm more interested in a relational power-driven God than an authority authoritative power-driven God. Mm, yeah. It's way more interesting. Yep.
1: A God who empowers rather than overpowers.
2: Okay. Yes. This is uh, fascinating. This could take us down a whole thing. We won't go too much longer. Uh, My friend Scott says, There are some who don't experience surprise as joy, but as chaos and discord. And that's true.
1: Mm -hmm. And, well, I have a thought. Do you have a thought about chaos? Uh, why don't you riff on chaos? I'll riff on the surprise as joy and just simply say, you know, Scott, surprises aren't always joyful. <laughs> you know, uh, and that's what a he, month... what you yeah, and I think he's right. Um, so uh, I we when we talked about God. Uh, being surprised and enjoying that surprise, that's true. But there are some things that are surprising that aren't enjoyable, Mm -hmm. and God suffers with those, Uh, just like the same for you and me. So, yeah, I think he's right about that. Do you want to talk about the chaos?
2: I love this stuff, and I I don't know how to articulate it very well. Um, But chaos, um, so I think it has something to do a little bit with what you were talking about, the two different conceptions of God. Because in the one in that earlier perception or conception, um, I suppose it's perception, you know, chaos for that God is evil and bad, and in that in that framework, it's 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 framed in such a way that God has to be separate from the chaos. And now we're going back to the very beginning in Genesis. Um, he comes from from another space and, and another time to step in and to order the chaos. Uh, The famous Hebrew phrase is tohu vabohu, formless and void, uh, which is a a really impotent rendering of this richly deep Hebrew thing of uh, chaos and potential, all these problems. But all the problems somehow come infused, come packaged with possibility. Mm. And so I guess where my brain went, and I don't know what – for sure what scott was saying but where my brain went was yeah absolutely chaos so there are no guarantees bad things can happen but what we get is somehow love it's like what is it it's like barnacled to the underside of the chaos and all the problems Mm -hmm. it's like secret double agent subversive under on the underside and just when you think chaos is going to pull you down to the depths, uh, somehow love is so beautiful and, and interesting and, and powerful. So, yes, it's chaos, but it doesn't mean chaos is bad, I guess, is what I want to say. Mm, yep. I just mean chaos is just
1: chaos. Well, sometimes we want chaos because things are so boringly uniform and the same. We think, let's break out of this. <laughs> you know, we need some disruption. There would be no life.
2: Right, left. right.
1: Right. Hey, I've, I've got a question for you uh, based on something Elaine said at the end. Okay. And let me set it up by saying, when she said this line, I had not thought about this. This was a, a new idea to me. Right near the end, she said, and I wrote it down, she said something like this. I love you is a request that you love me. Mm -hmm. I hadn't thought about that. And my mind went to some of my own romantic relationships when I thought we were at the place where I could drop the L word. You know when that is like. You know, man, I, I feel like I love this, this person. And when you do it that first time, especially, even today, but especially the first time, mm-hmm. man alive, you're wanting that other person to respond in kind, right? <laughs> you don't want to be left hanging here. <laughs> and I wondered, you know, I, thought about, I haven't thought about that in terms of God, but I don't know, what struck you when you heard that line?
2: Vulnerability. Vulnerability. Mm. so God says he he loves us and it's the first it's the first word it's the first move and so the first thing in the cosmos is vulnerability mm. if there yeah.
1: is, if there is a first thing yeah yeah maybe there's a first moment each moment or something <laughs> well, right. yeah.
2: in in every moment yeah constant energy of love that is so Fierce and unrelenting, uh, but it's so vulnerable, man. It's no. so beautiful and weak, but it's also the strongest thing at the same time.
1: Yep, yeah. yep, yeah. yeah, that's so true.
2: Yeah, I hadn't, I'd never really thought about that either, but that's what I thought of when she said it. I, vulnerability came to mind.
1: Yeah, very good. I like it. Hmm,
2: well. Um, it's about nine o'clock and I think what we'll do is, uh, well, nine o'clock, my time you're out there in the mountains. So, (laughs) uh, I think we probably should wrap it up if you're good with that. Yep. Um, we'll, uh, I'll peruse through some of these other comments and questions too. Maybe try to shoot an email and follow up with some of that. And again, my sincere apologies. I genuinely do not know what happened there at the beginning. Other than I've, never done a zoom webinar quite like this
1: (laughs) no it's not a big
2: deal i will um well i don't care about you i care about these these people (laughs) (laughs) i do care about you um but tomorrow trust me folks i'm i will hunt the problems down and do the best i can just stay close to your emails and uh unfortunately or fortunately i have everyone texts everyone's cell numbers now so uh, if I have to send out invites that way, I'll do it again,
1: but we'll meet up again, uh, for session two with, uh, yeah, let's tease that. Yeah. Uh, Monica Coleman is going to be talking. Uh, she is, she gives a very personal kind of history of not only kind of her faith and how she thinks about sexuality. And that's, uh, it's a powerful video.
2: Yes, it is. She's very personable. She's hilarious, man. Cause, um, I mean, you know her personally. I don't. I've, I've heard her a lot and read her. But she can talk about the most serious things with the most giant smile on her face. And uh, and it's genuine. It's not fake either. So that's great. And then, yes, Linda K. Klein um, will be with us, her and her husband Jimmy, tomorrow night. Uh, I think that might be the longest video, but um, Linda is a best-selling author of the book Pure with the greatest, longest subtitle, which I can't remember in the history of subtitles. Um, And it's all about sex. It's all about purity culture. So, geez, I had the thought tonight listening to Elaine. Like, if we had had Elaine's theology, if that had been our theology in America, we would have never had the purity Mm, culture movement. Great point. Yeah. Goodness gracious. So, yeah, it's well worth it. Several of you have asked about the recordings. 100%, absolutely. We'll get the recordings uh, to you. And um, especially since some of you may have missed the beginning of tonight, but that will all be available. And all of this is going to live on my website for a while. I'm not sure how that'll all play out, but uh, it'll at least be there for a little while.
1: Cool. I'm looking forward to tomorrow. Okay, thanks so man. much for putting this all together, Jonathan.
2: Well, I'm going to go take a bunch of Advil now. <laughs> <laughs> Try to lay down. So thanks a lot, Dr. Tom.
1: We'll see you tomorrow. All right. See y'all. Bye-bye.